My name is Monica Gleberman, and you're listening to Silence On Set Podcast. On today's podcast, we're talking to Seth Rise, who is a co-writer of the film The Menu. The film focuses on a young couple who visits an exclusive destination restaurant on a remote island where the acclaimed chef has prepared a lavish tasting menu, along with some shocking surprises. So to talk about how he got involved and a little bit more about his background, here's Seth Rise. I wanted to kind of start off with... So you're born in Pennsylvania. Yes. And you went to BU, which by the way, I was super excited. I went to UMass. A little bit of Massachusetts background there. I, I got a little bit warm when you said you were born in Pennsylvania because in all the stuff that I've done for anything, for the movie or anything, the Pennsylvania, being born in Connellsville, Pennsylvania has never once come up and it's truly a very important uh, part of my life. <laughs> Well, I wanted to ask you, so basically I went to UMass, I kind of got my graduate degree and then like went off from there. You went to BU from Pennsylvania, you moved to New York. So yeah. what were your steps first to initially just get into the industry? Because as you know, and I know this industry is so difficult to kind of walk in and start working. It is difficult initially, especially if you don't have uh, good friends. And I was very fortunate to have some very, 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 very lovely friends that I met at BU. One group of those friends were in my sketch comedy group at BU. And we all decided to move to New York together to perform sketch comedy together. And we moved to New York together. We started performing at UCB together. Though we weren't making any money, it did feel like we were a part of something. And we had also kind of gotten all the garbage out in college. But we had, and so when we moved to New York, which is college is a very supportive environment to get garbage out because yeah. you get people love you and you think you're great. And then you realize, oh, that was garbage. But then <laughs> when we moved to New York, we had sort of really honed our, our voice as a group. And so we kind of hit the ground running because we had kind of four years of work uh, behind us. So that was tremendous being with that group and starting to do sketch comedy at UCB. It just made you feel like there was some sort of structure in this world where there's no structure. And then I also did a bunch of internships at like various late night shows. The Late Late Show with Craig Kilborn before it was Craig Ferguson. Um, late Night with Conan O'Brien when it was Late Night in Rockefeller Center. Conan O'Brien yeah. seems to be like a rite of passage. <laughs> a lot of people I talked to went through there. It's funny. It's it's not only is it a rite of passage if you go through there. It's also if you don't go through there and you want to be a like sort of a late night comedy person. Conan O'Brien is sort of like this looming figure, especially for what you want to do is sketch comedy. And then I was a page at Letterman, another sort of looming figure. I remember I got my mom and dad into the Letterman show where he and Oprah first like sort of made up. Like oh, they, the reconciliation episode. Yeah, and then, then he walked her to I believe the Color Purple because it was having its premiere that night. But the other friend that I had at BU, who I also helped, he helped me get an internship. I helped him get an internship. His name is Mike Senzo. And Mike ended up being an intern and then copy editor at The Onion. And then he got promoted to writer at The Onion. And when he did, a guy who had been at The Onion forever since it started in Madison, Wisconsin, he wanted to start a sports section. And my buddy Mike said, hey, I have a friend who could help us out. And that was me. And so 
I was doing sketch comedy in New York with my one group of friends. And then I started writing freelance for the start of Onion Sports with another close, close friend who I'm still close, close friends with. And I was sort of doing those things simultaneously. And then, you know, eventually at the Onion, I started contributing to the regular part of the paper. So I was doing sports and I was doing the regular part of the paper. And then I, I got hired full time as a staff writer. That kind of, those two things sort of just begat some good experiences and put me on some sort of path where I could do this uh, professionally. During that time, you know, when you're like kind of exploring and we're so hungry and like, you know, we want to move forward and we want to learn and we're so excited. What was one of like your favorite memories or one of the best pieces of advice someone gave you at that time when you're kind of struggling? Because we all, I feel like did the whole, we're not making money, but we want to do this. So you just like kind of go through it. Performing sketch comedy, even though you're only doing, even though sometimes we only did it for like 12 people, when it was going well and we kind of built up a modest following in New York, I think our group voice was quite pure and uh, interesting. I think that sort of then filtered into other creative endeavors, especially the menu of like being very sort of focused on a unique voice that no one else is doing or trying that. That just keeps you going forward because it feels good and those performances feel good and you feel like you're in it together with your friends and that feels good. But one piece of advice that has always stuck with me, he has no idea that this is true and he does not remember me at all. At The Daily Show, because it, it was when I interned at The Daily Show, it was The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. We got to do like a, a round sort of table discussion with him because this specific class, class of interns helped move the studio from its location that was in like a brownstone to its like new location, which it is now, which is a much bigger studio. And I think yeah. they felt very bad that we had to do that. I remember moving many garbage bags full of weird liquids to like the location. <laughs> And John Stewart just said, like, it's really important to be good, to continue to be good, to work and be good, because people are always looking for people who are good. And to continue to be good takes work and you have to show up every day, but you have to be good. That's always like resonated with me. And it sounds so, it's so simple. And maybe people hearing that will think it's like trite or maudlin or whatever, but I think it makes sense. Just people are always looking for people who are reliably good. And if you are reliably good, I do think you eventually pop out and are noticed. That's like great advice. You know, it's just, it's the honesty, right? The vulnerability to be able to do whatever you need to do and to just make sure that you're doing it with good intention because this business, you know, it's kind of the gambit. So it's rare to find someone that- I think there's like a weird thing in the cosmos if you're working on a script or you're working on something where you know in your brain the extra steps you have to take to make it good. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's exhausting to do those steps. But then if you look at your stats with some sort of perspective, you realize, oh, and those those things that I took the extra time and I made sure they were really good, those things had some sort of success. And the ones that you kind of like, just say, I'm done. They don't. So, yeah. So you do all of this stuff. You're working at The Onion. You end up, you know, working with Seth Meyers. So yeah. you have like all of these things going on. How does the menu enter your life? Because I know you, obviously you co-wrote it and all of this stuff, but yeah. how does this happen? Will and I met at The Onion and we worked together for a long time at The Onion and we moved up together at The Onion. Well, he actually started off as an intern and I was a staff writer. And then Will, because he's very, very good, very good, <laughs> moved up. And then he eventually rose to editor-in-chief of The Onion and I rose to head writer of The Onion. But those two positions really made sense for the both of us in terms of roles. I'm a better head writer than I would be an editor 
editor-in-chief. To be a good editor-in-chief, you have to have some sort of professional detachment. And I'm too emotional to have any professional detachment. So that's why I'm a good head writer. So Will and I, we worked really well together. And we were really putting out the paper. And there was a point where the Onion moved editorial offices from New York to Chicago. Will and I moved with them because we love the work. Will also had some personal, his basically his future wife was then living in Chicago. So it made sense for him to move. And so we just continued to really work well together. We had the same, we had a similar sense of humor. We filled gaps where we didn't share, where we had weaknesses maybe. And when I got to Seth Meyers and uh, Will got to John Oliver, you're entering a different level of show business. The Onion's like a long form art project. So it's not show business. But when you go to, you know, you're working at Rockefeller Center, or you're working at HBO, like you're, you're in show business and not an entity that has a, so you're working for someone and their voice sort of then dictates the product. And you have to figure out how your voice can fit in with what they do. And then if you're a creative person, you feel like, oh, well, there's a big chunk of my creative mind that isn't being used that I'd really like to use. And I think Will felt that way too with John Oliver. That's not to say that when I was at Seth, I didn't get to fulfill like some amazing dreams. And I still do get to fulfill like dreams that I have of show business, like working with Steve Martin or like, like it's crazy. But you know, there's that part of you that is the most pure form of you that might not really work on the show. So Will and I, we were like, well, we should write movies. And we wrote one movie that nothing happened. What is that your first go is the menu? <laughs> the first go was a movie that we were very excited about. And I can tell you, I can count on one hand because no finger would rise the amount of people that were excited about it. It was a total donut. You know, we really enjoyed working together and that didn't discourage us. And then Will had his honeymoon in Norway. He went to a restaurant that was on an island. He took a boat. He got there and oh. was like, what if this went wrong? He came back to New York. I mean, it's not all in sequential, but eventually it takes place at this restaurant and the structure of the movie is like a tasting menu. I, I immediately knew what he was trying to get at in terms of tone because I think we were enamored in, of the idea of chef as artist, chef as artist losing his mind, chef as dealing with these people who don't appreciate his art. But then the idea that, well, that, that's the job you chose, buddy. So either continue doing it or, you know, lose your mind. And so from there, we started to figure out what the initial engine of the story was, who the characters would be, who would populate the restaurant. And we were kind of off to the races and we actually actually kind of wrote the menu the way we wrote the onion. We brainstormed the outline together in a room together. And then when it came down to actually writing the script, I would go off on my own, write 15 pages, send it to Will. Will would write, do a pass on those 15 pages, write 15 more pages, send to me. And we would just go back and forth until the movie was done. And the outline was pretty detailed, but there were sort of gaps in it that we didn't know what to do. So it was fun because we got to surprise one another with our pages. And that I think kept the creativity electric uh, throughout the writing process. And the structure of the menu and knowing like, hey, if you're losing momentum here, get to the next course. And you know, tension has to rise within that course to the next course. So it actually made for a pretty easy writing process. What made you guys decide to write in, you know, it was such a twist when you're watching it and you're thinking, oh my gosh, they're they're so fancy and they have so much money and they're going to this great fancy restaurant. What was the idea to go, okay, we're going to kind of flip this and this guy's not planning on leaving like, and he's not planning on letting these people leave. <laughs> Who came up with that idea and the meaning that was behind it, you know, the fact of these people and what they represented. I think the idea that 
they were trapped there. We always kind of knew that without talking about it. I think we knew two things. We knew that they were trapped there. We knew Margot was going to get out. We knew that. In fact, I've always said that if you put a title card up before the movie starts that said the character of Margot gets out, I would be fine with that because of course she does. It's how she gets out and all the stuff leading up to it that is interesting and that matters. We all know the girl gets out. I think what then as we talked about it more, the restaurant became sort of the final station for all these people. And sort of like, this is the end for a lot of them. And the idea that, look, if the night went off normally and they paid their bill and they got back on the boat and they went home and they went to bed, is tomorrow all that great for them? And I think all the characters kind of come to that realization by the end of the movie that, look, it's time to go. And Chef, through the night, has made a compelling argument as to why that's true. That actually, while I had that thought and Will had that thought, our director, Mark Mylod, brought that out in us more in subsequent passes of the script. And then little touches that he added in filming, which, you know, at the end, you know, Judith Light is saying thank you to Chef. Two of the characters behind Chef, when at the final sequence, when the chef says, I love you all, they say, I love you too, Chef, also. So they're on board. And there's like a, you know, there's a small moment when they're all, when the characters are all outside and one of the tech guys says, you know, we can, maybe we can find a way to escape. And another one says, to what? And the guy says, what are you talking about? And he's like, escape to what? It's small, but you know, there are enough of these little touches, I think, throughout that the characters start off, I think, two-dimensional. And then when the shit hits the fan, I think their self-realization deepens and they become more three-dimensional as they have to deal with crisis. And then we kind of learn sort of how sad they all are. I think that's one thing that everyone has in common, including Margot, is that they're all sad. Tyler being the most sad. Yeah, and like, well, what I loved about it too is I also felt like just what you're saying, a lot of them seem to, in the beginning, you get like this almost elitist vibe, right? Like when they show up. But as it goes on, you hear all these problems and you're, so at first you're like, okay, everyone has problems just like me. As you start watching more of it, the acceptance of them going, you know, with one actor being like, yeah, I haven't acted. I'm kind of like a B-list at this point. They're almost accepting the fact that there is nothing better for them out there, that it's okay to kind of go out with the bang with this like great meal and this like kind of situation which is why it's so calm kind of in the last yeah and you know the the chef asks like why didn't you try to fight back harder you probably could have gotten out Mm. something the chef says something to think about yeah (laughs) yeah i think that's also a saying to the audience like why do you think why do you think they didn't fight harder i like that there's some ambiguity to that and you'd have to think about it a little longer yeah why didn't they and and hopefully people do i feel if the movie does its trick it is something that hopefully you think about a little bit later in the next day and oh yeah and then some people might just fucking hate it and not do that but (laughs) that's fine too it's you know it's all subjective and but our will and i's dream uh version is that people do you know well i feel like there's people that go and probably just had fun right and then there's people that go like me and we walked out and like a bunch of my friends we were all arguing like i was like no no no. this is why they say no no no. this is why they got out so i think there's like that kind of two way where like you go and like you just want to have fun then there's this like discussion and we got like super deep about it you know about reasons and why you would do things and why you make decisions that you do i found it very interesting i love that you guys decided pretty early on that margo was going to be the one to get out what i love is why do you pick 
pick her specifically as a woman, yeah. which made me very excited that she almost in a way he felt respect for her. He understood her. She kind of outsmarted him a little bit. But then also, I want to make sure to address the burger because there was yeah. nothing better than her seeing on, you know, sitting on the yacht and just going, I'm going to eat the burger that he gave me to go. So I wanted to kind of hear your aspect as to those two reasons, like why you chose her and that burger scene. Purely on a story level, story mechanics level, you need a fly in the ointment. And she's the fly in the ointment. She is the engine that if she wasn't there and Chef, there were no complications in the evening at the outset, I guess we would watch Chef carry out his plan. And I think dramatically, that's not very interesting. Also, just thinking about a pure story, it's compelling that a sort of chef in his late 50s, early 60s, who's very, very good at his job, sees some connection with a woman in her 20s who is also quite good at her job and values being good at her job, like Chef values being good at his job. That is just compelling to me and to Will. Seemingly, if we put them together in a picture, we would think these two could not be more opposite. But what actually drives them is almost exactly the same. I think you can have different interpretations of the burger, but I do think those are two artists working their magic at the same time. I think there's a healthy discussion to be had of whether or not she's pulling one over on him, whether he knows exactly what she's doing and is okay with it because maybe he didn't have the ending to his menu that he would have actually liked. But then when she's on the boat and she's eating the burger and she's watching it all burn down, she does wipe her mouth with the menu. I think it's complicated. I, I do think there's a genuine nanosecond moment where he is serving her the burger and she is giving him this moment. They are both very much in tune with one another and respect one another. I think that's true. Maybe because I have a certain truck for sentiment, I want to to believe that's true but I do think that's true that's how I, I felt I felt that there was a mutual respect between the two yeah. and for some reason and that's why they that she got out that was my feeling is why she got out and he had some sort of respect for her and then as the movie goes on I put together I went I think it's because of her job because she wasn't supposed to be there and she right. came anyway and you know like so all of those things that, so it's a movie that you have to watch I, I told everybody watch it more than once you're going to catch things that you didn't see conversations you know at different tables and yeah. just like so many things to just discuss Hollywood's in there the business is in there like it's just so many things are in that I think you can map Hawthorne onto any sort of machine-like institution that operates at a very high level I'm sure a ballet an elite ballet dancer would see the menu and be like oh that's exactly like my company I think a member of a, the New York Philharmonic might go and be like oh he's the conductor I'm one of these players I worship him I want his approval so much. The one moment that Will and I really, really love is when the female sous chef, Catherine, who I think an audience might want to be like, and rightly so, but she's a victim. And I think an audience might want to be, she is the best. And then all of a sudden at the very end, no, everyone dying was my idea. <laughs> And I was really I, proud. And I was, and, and it's like, she's, you know, she still wants to impress him and she still wants to do her job at a really high level. And what the assignment called for, like, we don't, we never see the moment before the moment, right? But right. we imagine that like all creative people with their staff, they were brainstorming, how do we do this? What's the best way? Mm -hmm. Give me five ideas. I'm going to take the best one. Great. Yes. And how do they? Oh, yes. Like you can imagine that meeting and the series of meetings. I'm glad we never show that. I think I've read some 
things like we want to know how it got to this point. So glad you guys didn't show it. I related it to that. It was almost like you yeah. want to be the one that got that funny line. You want to be the one that got the infamous line or like, you know, whatever it is. You want to be the one that solves the plot hole. Yep. Whatever the case is, she was that person. And she, in that, yeah. yes, it's a heightened scenario. Yes, it sounds crazy to some, but to her, it meant a lot. And he picked yeah. her idea. And, yeah. you know, that's what happened. It, it was so amazing. I know like we're running close on time. So it was such an amazing film. There's so many things. I would literally pick your brain about like every little scene because I've watched it so many times. Before we go, what are like two things? Mm-hmm. If you have like, if you have one, another thing that you're like dying to, to, no. to know, <laughs> I'll happily give you something if I got it. I appreciate mm-hmm. very much the fact that you've watched it so closely. Like that's cool. We worked really hard on the movie. We knew it was fun, but we also knew that we were trying to say something else too. And it's, lovely that it's gotten this sort of response and I don't think Will and I at all take that for granted because it's very hard to break through in anything in this world ever so uh we appreciate it I was really curious this might seem like a weird question but I look at everything and I loved the location that you guys picked the way you shot it and the cinematography and that a lot of it you know 90% of it takes place in kind of one room and then there's like a bathroom and then the kitchen but it's like an open concept you know other than the bathroom what was the decision behind that because we see everybody sort of at all times which i thought was very interesting narratively speaking it's just there's a dialogue right happening between the diners and the staff it's narratively interesting that we see all of them together as opposed to like a curtain closing and we don't see the kitchen. It's just that energy that anything could happen, that we're all in sort of this dialogue. Realistically, Will and I have gone to several of these restaurants where the kitchen, you can walk up to the kitchen, walk through the kitchen, watch the cooks cook. There's a restaurant in Chicago called El Ideas where it's an open kitchen. The executive chef there, his name is Philip Foss. It's a Michelin star restaurant. It's fantastic. And we recently got dinner with, with Philip and we talked about the movie with him. And But he would come out before every dish and introduce every dish. Different type of chef. Uh, he's a lovely man. And the interior of that restaurant is much more warm. We would never want to lose that tension between patron and staff member. Luckily, in reality, that actually does exist. So we knew, oh, that that makes sense. But there is a dividing line, right? Like you walk into the kitchen, that's their world. My other question was in particular for Ralph. What made you guys decide to choose him? And when you did choose him, how did you explain to him? Because you did such a great job of not making, he's not like a villain. Right. He's not like a horrible person. So, and that's a, such a fine line, right? Because if yeah. you show too much, we're going to watch it and hate him. Right. If you don't show enough, you're going to be like confused and walk out and be like, why was he doing that? Right. You guys showed exactly what we needed to see to understand why yes. he was doing what he was doing. So when you brought him on, why him? And then how <laughs> did you kind of talk to him about it like in his brain to kind of prepare for that i will say we were blessed that he wanted to do it because there there be there became a moment in the writing where will and i were like oh this is this is ray fines we're, we're now writing this for ray fines and so because we're so aware of all the moves he's able to make and i know we we never told this to him but i always said to will it was like it's his character from the grand budapest hotel meets his character from schindler's list and we're bringing them together but the great part about his character in schindler's list is he's evil but he has, you can see that he's tortured. He has something, yeah. And you can see that he's questioning. You know he doesn't want to be. And so Rafe has that great ability to allow the audience to know that this guy's doing some bad stuff, but he's aware 
And he knows it's bad, but he wants you to know why he's doing it and what the problems are. And I think Rafe came to it as this is an artist who is filled with self-loathing. And so if you're an artist who's filled with self-loathing, I think you're not going to come off as like a mustache twirling villain. You're going to have a certain well of patheticness and sadness that's going to make you be just more complex as a human. So if you just play that out as realistic as possible, there's no way that that guy comes off as like, like we said, Tyler is the biggest psychopath in the restaurant. Rafe is completely aware of what he's doing. Tyler's gone. Rafe knows. And I mean, the one point though, where, you know, you wonder, is he the bad guy? But then he's disseminating justice and you're like, yeah, go get him chef. But then at one point he's quoting Martin Luther King. You're like, oh, take it easy, buddy. And you know, it's, it's also, I think a guy wrestling with ego. I mean, there are several times in the movie where he talks about ego. And I think it might be what he's doing is egoless. He wants to be seen as egoless, but I think it might be a case of thou doth protest too much. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, this, he wants to create his masterpiece. You can't not have an ego and also want to create your masterpiece. These things coexist. So yeah, I mean, I think there was just, we love the character and we love these types of chefs in the real life. And we think they are magic. We think they are geniuses, but some of it is also bullshit. We as writers were wrestling with that as well. How do you feel about the response to it? Because obviously it blew up. We, I mean, everybody I know saw it, everybody. So what was that like? Because obviously you said your first movie, you're like, I can count on one hand. Now you have like millions of people all over the world watching this film yeah. and the buzz and the awards and like, and then the fans of this movie. I mean, it's crazy. So like, what does that feel like for you? I mean, as a writer, I can't imagine what that must feel like. And then is there anything you want to say to the fans? When I went to test screenings in LA, first like credit to Searchlight for, letting it ride. There was never a time where they were like, we need to soften this. We need to make this. We need to do this to make it more accessible to more people. They, they, they never did that. They just let us go. So it, it kept the voice pure, which was good. And I think from there, if the voice is pure, you have audiences that will really love how pure it is. So what you get is people who feel spoken to. And I think that creates a very intense fan base because they are happy and excited that this thing that is very pure has been gifted to them and that it speaks to them. I always thought like the onion is very, very pure. And I think people who love the onion fucking love the onion, but there are also people who do not like the onion and they can't stand the onion. And I'm sure that I know, believe me, I know there are people who cannot stand the menu, but the people who love it really, really love it because they don't, because they know that there's no bullshit there. And so I guess for, to speak to the fans of it, thank you for seeing that there's no bullshit and that we worked very hard to give you something that was as creatively interesting and as creatively pure as we could do it. It's been very cool. Like it could have been way more depressing for me, believe me. This movie comes out, no one sees it, <laughs> critics hate it. The bombs at the box office, it gets the second life on streaming that nobody gives a shit about. Yeah, it could have been really, it could have been a real bummer, but I am very happy that it wasn't and I'm, I'm happy that it resonated with people. I think you're a genius. I think oh. the two of you that wrote this are geniuses because the way it plays out, the information you give when you give it, the multiple layers, the dimensions of the characters, the conversations that are going on, the person who gets out, her reaction, just everything you cannot walk out and not talk about it. And it's a movie that you talk about for like weeks. That's very nice of you. And I'm glad you liked it. And this has been very lovely. And I really appreciate it. And can people follow you on social? And I know you're also doing the palace. 
Dallas. I want to throw that out there really quickly. That is Will created that show. I was fortunate enough to work in the writer's room on it with a lot with a group of really good writers. And I think it'll be a very uh, a weird little ride. But yeah. where can people follow you? I have a parody Twitter account that I've done for over a decade. The Twitter account is Matt Albi 60. And I created it, I think five years after the show Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip was canceled by NBC. If anyone's even still familiar with that show, it was behind the scenes of a sketch comedy show that Aaron Sorkin created. It ran for one season yep. and got canceled. I created a Twitter account that sketch comedy show were real and that the head writer of that show, the Matthew Perry character, were real. And I've been tweeting as that character for over 10 years. So That's if you guys want to follow that, <laughs> knock yourselves out. <laughs> <laughs> so we could follow you there, but we could see you work next for the palace. So that's where the, the next thing that we can see your work. I think so. And you can also just watch Late Night with Seth Meyers and, yep. and enjoy it. And whether that's my work or other people's work, it's good to have people tuning into that too. Hope you guys enjoyed listening to Seth Rise, the co-writer of The Menu. Talk about what it was like writing the film, the process behind it, and of course his reaction to the fans loving the film. So if you haven't seen it, the film was released on November 18th and it's currently available now streaming on HBO Max so make sure you go and check it out and don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you're updated on all of our latest podcasts and head over to our YouTube channel hit subscribe so you're updated on all of our video content